Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Safeguarding Kids Online, How to Clean Up Big Tech's Mess. Please welcome Heritage President, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Welcome, and thank you for that. And I'm glad that you're here, uh, here in person. Those of you who are online, that's, that's wonderful, too. It's a big day in America. We're taking on big tech. And among the many privileges that I have as president of the Heritage Foundation, one of them is introducing really important men and women who have courage. They have courage because they know the truth, people who are cheerful warriors. This particular introduction and conversation that I'm about to have is special to me because this is also my attorney general as, as a relatively new Virginian. To go from Ken Paxton in Texas to Jason Miaris in Virginia means I'm a pretty privileged guy. Jason Miaris, as you know, served in the House of Delegates starting in 2015. In fact, almost 50 years to the day, his mom, who migrated from Cuba, was able to vote for him in 2015. And he went on to be elected the 48th Attorney General of the Great Commonwealth of Virginia. And since that time, he has been fearless. He has been someone who is a great communicator for conservative principles, as we'll be talking about today, not just cleaning up big tech's mess, but from the standpoint of a father, which really resonates with people across the political spectrum. And so it is a great privilege to welcome Attorney General Miaris here. Please join me in welcoming him to the stage. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. Well, General Miaris, welcome to Washington, D.C. Right across the river, yes, sir. Indeed. How's life? It's good. You know, I, I like to say my job is I get to wake up in the morning and, and sue the Biden administration. So uh, it's, it's fun and business is booming these days. There's a lot of job security in right, that. Right, right. We'll, we'll get into some of the details of some of the actions that you've taken, but sort of high-level question as we jump in here. The people who are here in the audience in person, no doubt, have spent some time either watching online or in-person hearings today on big tech. What's your sense about where we are in this moment as it right. relates to common sense Americans? Forget, forget you know, where they are, quote unquote, politically, but common sense Americans realizing we're at this inflection point and now we get this hearing today. Well, I think you're right in the sense that we're at this inflection point. Uh, I'm convinced that decades from now, future generations are going to look at the way we allow big tech to run amok, the way we allow this exposure and targeting of our kids, and think, how in the world did this happen? How did we get here? And so I think you're starting to see a real pushback. You know, one of our themes in Virginia in 2021 when we ran, uh, Governor Yunkin would put on our campaign signs, Parents Matter. Uh, and that's really, in many ways, the genesis of this. Of everything we've done in, as AG, one of the most reactions has been some of our litigation investigations in the big tech. So you're seeing just grassroots efforts by parents. I'm so grateful for Heritage, the work they're doing, raising the profile and being the tip of the spear of this as well. You're seeing federal legislation, but you're also seeing a lot of work by our state AGs around the country banded together, and even on a bipartisan basis. There's very few things that can bring people together. But I think even Democrat AGs are seeing the data of the social health crisis, 
um, the mental health crisis for our kids. And it's really, our, we are at this inflection point of, we've recognized now we have an enormous problem and now we have to go about rectifying it. We'll talk about how you've gone about trying to rectify it in your current position, but, but getting to know you pretty well over the last couple of years. Also know you see the world, you see your own work, your avocation through the lens of being a dad right. to, to, to three children. Give us advice as a parent about social media. Uh, well, you know, I have one of those things where I have the, the diamonds on my heart, my three daughters. Uh, they're 17, 15, and a very precocious 12. And like a lot of parents, it's a battle. It's a, it's a, a constant both monitoring and candid worry of what they're saying. And, and, you know, if you're a parent, make sure your child's cell phone is being charged in your bedroom or in the hallway and not in their in their room. Monitor what's happening. Make sure you have parental controls. The one thing I've realized, if you're a parent, tragically, and if you give your child a smartphone with social media apps and you have no parental controls on that, that is a day that your child's childhood ends. That's a day their innocence goes away. Because the messages and the targeting of what happens for our youth, Kevin, it's unlike anything we've ever seen, whether it's Meta or whether it's TikTok, the reality is, is that you were literally dropping your child off at a city park at 1 a.m. in the morning with no parental supervision and a lot of bad actors around there waiting uh, to get involved. So really, when we say parents matter, it also means, gosh, it's hard being a parent these days. You have to have those conversations. You have to make sure they have guardrails as where to protect them. Um, and also, my job then as attorney general is to make sure the big tech's held accountable. So let's talk about that a little bit. And thank you, by the way, for the, for the advice. I'll just underscore that not only as a dad of four, including three girls, roughly the same ages. As yeah, us. yeah. We, we know the world. Right, right. But also as a school leader that I, I've, I've seen wonderful kids' lives temporarily ruined mm -hmm. by social media. Obviously, we've had some just gruesome and tragic stories in the last days about lives permanently being ruined, obviously. This, therefore, is a question about your, your attorney general hat. How do you respond to the devil's advocate question, just let parents decide? Let's, and, and, and this is often a well-intentioned rejoinder by well-intentioned conservatives, common sense folks who say, we, we believe in, in parents deciding. How do you respond? Well, I think what you've seen is part of our job as attorney general, what, what we say, the <clears throat> phrase I sometimes use is attorney general of Virginia, we view ourselves as the people's protector, whether it's major crime or bad corporate actors. And I believe in parental rights, obviously, but what happens when bad corporate actors are putting profits ahead of our kids' safety? So we already technically have federal uh, uh, legislation that's been codified, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, otherwise known as COPA, that says you can't have a social media account if you're under the age of 13 without explicit parental permission. We know now that up until 2019, uh, Instagram owned by Meta had no restrictions whatsoever. And effectively, all you have to do is go online if you're a 10, 11, or 12-year-old and simply say, yes, I'm 15, I'm 17, I'm 19. It's estimated that 45% of every 10, 11, or 12-year-old child in America today has an Instagram or a TikTok account, close to half of every child. We also know you can look at a graph around the same time that smartphone usage and social media explosion happened around 2009. And that same graph shows the explosion of teen anxiety and mental health crisis. And what's so ironic about all this, Kevin, is on paper, this should be the 
happiest generation in American history. They're the most educated, they're materially the most well-off, but the reality is this is the most depressed generation in American history. One in three teenage girls in America today have had a suicidal thought or iteration. The levels of depression and anxiety are off the chart. And you're seeing so much data that shows increased usage of, of social media is leading towards this mental health crisis. So my response would be that as we now know, uh, for those who say, let parents decide, what happens when you have Instagram, Meta, testifying in Congress, essentially saying we are not knowingly targeting children, and now we know they were running TV ad, they were running targeted ads on PBS Kids and other children's shows. What happens when we now know that their internal communication showed that they, they somewhat referred uh, to the youth market as an untapped market, uh, that these digital, uh, targeted digital was like sprinkling digital cocaine for our youth, that they've set up systems essentially make sure you stay online or constantly looking at your phone. And so I would say part of our job is to recognize when these are bad corporate actors, and I would end with this, Several decades ago, so many Americans reacted with horror when Big Tobacco was using Joe Camel to intentionally target youth. Why were they doing it? Because tobacco, Big Tobacco's response at the time was, if we can get somebody smoking at age 13, 14, or 15, we have a client for the next decade, two decades. I would argue that's exactly what big tech's thinking. The number one driver of social media use in a household is a parent gets a social media account. Why? Because their child gets one. And so they've realized that they have a quote-unquote ambassador in the household encouraging the parents and their siblings to get that Instagram account because parents want to try to monitor it. And it's a way that big tech purposely targeted minors in order to spread the usage of their social media accounts within households and within Americans. And knowing they would have then a quote client for the next X number of years. Uh, that's where we're at. And that's, that's what I think makes it different than just simply saying it's just leave it up to parents. And the parallels between tobacco and when we were growing up and, and social media today are actually very striking in terms of, of preying, frankly, on, on youth. Let's, let's pick your brain as an attorney. Uh, tell us about the basic arguments behind your meta lawsuit. They, they dovetail with what you were just talking about right. in response to that question. Well, a lot of what our meta lawsuit is the basic. We have uh, um, every, almost every state attorney general in the country has a variety of consumer protect, protection statutes in uh, embedded in their code. And so we actually are leading 41 state AGs are part of this. We have a steering committee of which I am on along with the Attorney General of Tennessee, Jonathan Scametti, the Attorney General of Colorado. It's bipartisan. Uh, and so the idea that we have is we pull our resources together. But really the core of it is a consumer protection where they are knowingly allowing minors to have access to a platform. Uh, they knowingly are targeting minors as well. Um, and when I mentioned Joe Camel, I realized a lot of people may not even know what Joe Camel was. It was a cartoon that cigarette companies were using, and what they realized from their own, what we now know today, they saw that children were attracted to the cartoon, and so they featured this cartoon character on so many advertising, specifically to target youth. And so that was a violation of a host of different states' consumer protection laws as well. That's really the core of what it is, and it really is a guardrail to keep these big corporations in, in check. And these are massive. I mean, I cannot emphasize enough. 
They make Standard Oil look like a small mom and pop store. These big tech companies, the resources they bring to bear, I have to commend Heritage uh, Foundation for standing up to this because the amount of money and power these big tech corporations have, it is a tough fight. And we need people both in the trenches, up on Capitol Hill, obviously our state AGs, but it's gonna be all encompassing moving forward. Given that it will be all encompassing from the standpoint of the average American, average American family, if the, the lawsuit prevails, what's, what's the, the impact that people can anticipate in their everyday lives? I, I think if you're a parent, for once, you will have real substantive parental control on these platforms, which the technology already exists. It would not be hard for them. Where, the, where you're a parent, you actually have the ability of monitoring who is on these platforms. And you have to have explicit parental permission. So uh, as far as as far as uh, as far as this litigation. This is a little different than something we're helping Governor Yunkin in in Virginia. He has he has legislation, I'm happy to talk about it, about banning TikTok, which is another separate can of worms, just for minors in Virginia. Um, but our litigation will require these big tech companies to have real substantive parental controls and parameters. And candidly, you know, I like to say no one should ever be sued and have it be a surprise as attorney general. Uh, we try to have these conversations, obviously, and, and it's unfortunate we're here, but it's never too late to do the right thing. They can tomorrow adopt some of the parameters of what we're asking for to really protect parents. So I you know I saw that Mark Zuckerberg apologized today on Capitol Hill. Uh, kudos to Lindsey Graham for pressing him on that. But apologies aren't enough. Now it's time for action. It's easy to get up there and say, I'm really sorry about the impact uh, social media has had on your, on your child. But now is the time for you to actually empower parents, again, parents matter, and give parents these tools to make sure that we don't have what we currently have, which is close to 50% of minor children, 10 to 12, on these apps, when technically under COPA, they're not supposed to be on without parental permission to begin with. So there are, in fact, probably several changes that these corporations can make themselves on their own right. to address these concerns and then the proverbial dog sort of back off, right? Well, I mean, the idea is is that, this is where I think we're going to end up, either either the ju a judge is going to order them or they can voluntarily do it themselves. And that's going to be up to these corporations. It's going to require constituents to hold them accountable. And I will tell you, of, of all the things we've done as AG, uh, the one that I get stopped the most on you know, from out at the store or at a restaurant, from parents, is this issue. I am, I am somewhat surprised the number of parents that say, thank you. One of the, the most common word I hear is, we feel overwhelmed. We just feel overwhelmed at the deluge of what's happening. And you, and you hear so many of these stories as well. It used to be the bullying would end at 2 or 3 o'clock when your child gets on the school bus. Now it follows you home. This is in a lot of ways even worse. And, and your child is, is much more likely to meet a, a sex predator online than they'll ever meet uh, in a neighborhood or at the mall. Um, in fact, human trafficking sometimes occurs without your child ever leaving the bedroom. Um, and so what you have right now is you have this online world that is so dangerous for our kids, and you labor on top of that, you have big tech companies that have allowed a free-for-all as well for years, and nobody's been holding them accountable. That then it provides really good context for the consumer protection side of this, right. and, and sort of like one of the previous questions we, we encountered. From the standpoint of conservatives, that isn't necessarily the first tool we reach for in the toolbox. Right. And, and I know you well enough to know that's not the first tool that right. you reach, but it's also not illegitimate, particularly on this, on this matter. 
Right, and there's a role. And um, I mean, obviously, you have a role both in litigation and, you know, you're not, you're, you're as a conservative, as somebody who believes in limited government, you're not necessarily looking, say, for example, uh, to, to quote, ban an app for minors. But I'll give you an example for TikTok. Um, this was this was a demonstration done for me. If if they set up a fake 15-year-old girl's account, uh, they set this up in our in our in our boardroom. They pull this up on the screen. They set up this fake 15-year-old girl's account. If you and I were to set up a TikTok account, the first videos that would show up would probably be I don't know, golf videos, something about American patriotism. First videos that showed up on this feed. First, one of the first was a self-harm video. How to date an older man. Again, profile 15-year-old girl. Another one glorifying drug use. Another one uh, describing how to use a sex toy. These are the first videos that show up in a feed of a brand new user on, on, on TikTok. I was, I was absolutely floored by this. And so when we say, you know, because I've had parents that have TikTok to say, well, I don't really see anything. It's, you know, these videos are fun and whatnot. First of all, it's designed to keep you engaged. But they give you a compare to what it is in China. All right, so it's owned by ByteDance, a, a company based out of China. In China, they have strict controls. Nobody under the age of 15 can be on it. After 45 minutes of usage, it cuts off. Nobody can access it after 10 o'clock at night. And so many of the videos on there are videos that glorify the People's Liberation Army or the Communist Party or the best of Chinese culture. It's very, very different than the algorithms what's showing up in our feeds. And when you layer on top of that, the national security issue, where now you're allowing, again, they passed a law and passed a law, but there's a law in the books uh, since at least 2016 in China that all of your data, every keystroke, uh, any information they can collect can be turned over to the Chinese Communist Party at any time. So. Uh, TikTok is both a national security concern, and we'll let the, our federal friends worry about that in many ways, but my concern is a consumer protection concern, and I think it's absolutely valid, and that's why I applaud the governor, Governor Youngkin's effort to, to ban it for minors in Virginia. What's the feasibility of that ban happening? You know, right now you're having a lot of litigation. What we're seeing is we're working with the, the litigation. Um, you know, the most likely scenarios you're going to see is, is litigation that really empowers a private cause of action, believe it or not. Uh, saying a parent has the ability of, of suing $75,000 per instant if you are not properly applying the COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, for your platform. It is amazing uh, how that can somewhat get these big tech companies to get in line when they're suddenly seeing real substantive penalties in place. So, you know, we're trying to think outside of the box. Um, you know, we, we've been part of our amicus brief with what Montana's been doing, but we're looking at something very Virginia-specific. We hope it can be a model um, across the country because Governor Youngkin, like I, am really concerned about what we're seeing, the impact on our youth. Any Anything you might be able to forecast in terms of the, the General Assembly doing this session? Obviously, we know that uh, the, the numbers aren't necessarily in our favor. Well, it's closely divided. I mean, Virginia is a closely divided state. It's one vote in each chamber. Uh, I was very disappointed last year that Governor Youngkin put in a budget amendment that would say big tech companies can't sell a minor child's data, and that would be common sense, right? Well, we know in government, One would say common sense is not very common sense. It died in a partisan vote. Uh, we are we are somewhat hopeful. Uh, we, we have we have seen some movement, at least behind the scenes. We will see 
Uh, I will say tragically, uh, you know, some of the big tech companies have probably hired half the lobbyists in Richmond. And so they have an aggressive lobbying campaign. I know they've done it here in Washington, D.C. They have an aggressive lobbying campaign. And so we'll see. Uh, uh, but my hope is, is that these delegates are hearing what I have heard from so many parents, which is they feel overwhelmed, give us help, do something about these irresponsible uh, corporate actors. And so many parents right now, I've heard some that have, their kids have had such an impact. And they will say, like, I wish I had known. I wish I had known what this was doing to my child. And so we want to make sure parents are aware of it. Obviously, parents matter, have those conversations, have those parental controls. But encourage your legislator. If you're Virginian listening or if you're anybody online in your state, I can guarantee you your legislative body is at least considering something in this space. Call your legislator. Make sure your voice is heard. Sign up to be with, with Heritage to be part of their team, making sure people are aware of what's going on as well. Because your voice has to be amplified and can cut through what I think is a pretty aggressive lobbying effort to kill any substantive legislation. And that's one of my other frustrations. They will say publicly they want to be part of the solution. But every time there's legislation, they actually try to push back and actually put these guardrails in place. They always find a reason to kill it. Um, and so we really require private Americans to stand up and say, no, we demand accountability. It is remarkable that uh, two things. Number one, this is an issue that by definition transcends partisan politics. Yeah. And, and so it is remarkable that it is in, not just in Virginia really cuts along those lines. But the second thing is remarkable in a good way. And that is in spite of that, as you and Governor Yunkin and Lieutenant Governor have shown in a deeply divided state, when you have the popular will. Correct. And you speak in common sense terms, not in ideological terms, and you speak on behalf of parents and families, you can break through those log jams, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, I will say, you know, we did a um, we did an internet safety town hall in Loudoun uh, with with Donna Rice Hughes. It was fantastic, one of our best attended event. We're doing several more of them around the state because I think there's a hunger for this, and I do think it transcends. Politics. I don't know when we got to a stage in society that protecting our children's innocence no longer was a priority. But it seems like that's where we've gotten. And I think you're seeing the whole Parents Matter movement, parental rights movement, really, in some ways, it, it began with that. How did we get to a stage where protecting our kids' innocence just didn't matter that much? And I think that's kind of the really what motivates, I know, me, I know it motivates so many at Heritage and those in Congress that are tackling this is the idea of, you know what, our, our kids matter, what they're being exposed to right now, the mental health crisis. Um, it's unlike anything we've ever seen as a country and as a nation. And it's good. it took a lot of steps to get here. I don't think there's a silver bullet, per se. I think there's going to be a lot of steps to get back to a point where we're getting back to equilibrium where we are championing parents. And it's going to take some perseverance, not just from elected officials like you and the governor, but people in this audience, people who are tuning in. And, and that perseverance, I know that you would attest to this as an elected official, really does pay off. Yeah. So let's, let's imagine that the five tech CEOs who are in town today cross the street from the Capitol. They walked into this great fear, the Heritage Foundation, sitting <laughs> right here. General Miaris, yeah. what would your message to them be? Stop putting profits over our kids. You can, too, within 24 hours, change your platforms to protect kids. Within 24 hours, you could change your platforms to empower parents. 
So in 24 hours, you could be a good, responsible corporate actor and help end what is happening to so many young people that are going down this dark, dark path. You could be a champion to help end and be a great tool to also help end the targeting and exploitation of our kids by sexual online predators. Be part of the solution. Stop being part of the problem. That'd be my message. I had an inkling you weren't going to disappoint with that. <laughs> One final policy question, and then the final, final question that I try to ask all guests here, especially elected officials. Different but related topic, artificial intelligence. Right. Uh, I'm a historian. I'd spend more time thinking about the past than the future. So AI scares the daylights out mm. of me. But my kids tell me, oh, Dad, it could really improve your life. What are we going to do about this from a policy standpoint? You know, it is the first technology in a while that has the ability of completely disrupting what have traditionally been white-collar jobs. Uh, it's in many ways productive, but I remember somebody did an advanced chat GBT uh, example for me where they just said, write a speech for Jason Miares. They wrote the speech, and I thought, wow, they're using some of my phrases. I mean, it wasn't perfect by any means, but I remember turning to my comms director and said, are you paying attention to this? So it's incredibly disruptive. I had a friend of mine who's a CPA at, a, at an accounting firm, and he said, I worry that a third of CPAs could be out of a job in the next five years. So it's going to be incredibly disruptive. Uh, it's like any other tool. It could be an incredible tool for good. It could be incredibly disruptive. Um, and so there probably needs to be some type of federal guardrails, which I'm not necessarily inclined to ever want to empower the federal government. But in this regards, um, particularly when you look at what AI can now do with, with uh, exploitation of children. If you have a photo of your child on your Facebook page, the bad guys can take that photo and they can then digitally alter absolutely graphic, sexually graphic videos with your child's face on it. That can happen right now. Uh, they can take your photo of yourself and they can have you suddenly announce that you want to you know, go invade Canada or something. I don't know. But there's really no response. There's, there, there's no liability. And so they also need to be some protection where if somebody is suddenly having you say something incredibly vile that would possibly cost you your job, right? There needs to be consequences as well for people that use AI as a tool for targeting young people and destroying people's careers, lives, or reputations. It's going to be difficult. My worry is sometimes the federal government can act in a very clumsy way. It's going to require a lot of smart stakeholders to get involved. But AI is going to be, it's going to be a tool that could be amazing. In healthcare, you can have somebody in rural healthcare have access to the equivalent of a John Hopkins doctor in their little old town for diagnosis. So it's pretty amazing what it can do, but it can also be a tool for evil, and you have to make sure you have guardrails. Thank you for that. I was I heard recently in Davos that we didn't need to vote anymore because AI could handle that. Oh. We had quite an experience. True story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little PTSD. Yeah. Uh, last, last question, and, and thanks, by the way, for being here. This is a question I, I try to ask as many people as possible on this stage. I know you to be hopeful. You're an optimist by nature. But you're also someone I count on to be a realist. And, and I think yeah. this conversation today indicates that. You're not a hollow optimist. So you woke up this morning. I know Jason Miaris well enough to know you woke up hopeful, leaning forward into the future in spite of all the challenges that right. exist in Virginia and Washington and America, why? What's the basis of that hopefulness? Well, some of it is, you know, people ask me what kind of name is Miara, as I say, well, it's Southern. 
And uh, <laughs> very so. But I have a deep, different perspective. And I will say, uh, uh, just last week, uh, I got to speak at a naturalization ceremony in Harrisburg, Virginia. And the judge doesn't always do this. That was one of my earliest childhood memories, seeing my mother become a citizen. She had asked me to teach her the Pledge of Allegiance as a child. But I will tell you this, the judge in that courtroom did something different. He handed the microphone off to these new Americans. And the one word I would use to describe what they said was gratitude. So many of them got up and said, America is the most welcoming country we've ever seen. That this, that I'm the proudest day of my life to be an American. And there was this 70-year-old gentleman from Afghanistan who got up. He didn't speak very good English, and he wrote out, he had his son write out a note he wanted to read. He said, this is the proudest day of my life. Both of my children have served the United States military, and I have told them their number one goal in life needs to make sure that their future children are as proud of this country and the amazing freedom it bestows on all of its citizens as I am. It was so moving. And I turned to one of my staffers and I said, there are more American flags in this courtroom than you've ever seen a college campus, and more gratitude that so many young Americans right now that have lived here for generations. That gives me hope, because sometimes it takes an outsider's perspective that we are indeed the last best hope on Earth, as President Reagan noted, that we are a unique country. We're still that beacon of hope and liberty. Um, and so that gives me grat. I, I tell and I would say everybody in this room, you won life's lottery by being here today, because right now there's millions of people that wish they could be where you are. That's to be an American. It is, people talk about privilege, American privilege, by being here, by breathing the air as a free American which also means we have to preserve it, fight for it for the next generation, to quote Reagan. So uh, it gives me hope, but it's also going to be a, a tough battle ahead. Amen. So you and I will shortly welcome our friend, my colleague, Kara Frederick, who directs our Tech Policy Center to the stage. But right before we do that, I'll ask all of you in the audience to join me in thanking Attorney General Jason Meares for a great conversation. Thank you. All right, I'll ask our panelists to all come up at once as well. Thank you to everyone for being here. This is, um, this is I think, the five alarm fire of our time. And um, uh, you know, I can be given to hyperbole at times, but, but this is the thing that I think we need to get right as Americans. And as you know, Attorney General Meares and Dr. Roberts have said, you know, AI with the advent of emerging technologies can be a game changer. It can change everything, especially when you're talking about what our kids see every single day, who controls the flow and access to information. It, we have bigger questions ahead, but we have to get this right from the get-go. And the hearing that's taking place in the Senate today, it is up against a backdrop of actual scientific studies, no matter what Mark Zuckerberg says, actual scientific evidence now that is starting to reify a causal link between social media and harm to children. And when I say harm, I don't mean it in the leftist progressive harm, like, oh, somebody looked at me funny, but I mean actual harms, like negative mental health impacts that we can actually quantify and measure. We know this because there's a January 2023 study. It was done by University of North Carolina neuroscientists that effectively said habitual social media use is rewiring the brains of children as young as 12. As young as 12. 
completely changing their brains by using these products. Cambridge University, if that wasn't enough, March 2022, they had a study that said increased social media use led to a decrease in life satisfaction for young women in particular at sensitive points in their adolescence. So this is actually happening. You have 42 state representatives, attorney generals that have uh, initiated a lawsuit against uh, a big tech company, Meta, saying that they are intentionally targeting young children with addictive properties. So all of that doesn't lie. And I think in some, it means this is something we have to get a handle on. And that's why everyone is up there on the hill testifying from their nice, uh, the comfort of their Palo Alto homes. So that being said, we have people, the best minds in the biz, to dissect this problem, starting with Don Hawkins. Don is the senior vice president and executive director of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Uh, she developed a global strategy which unites more than 300 women's rights, conservative, child advocacy, medical professionals, you name it, a bunch of groups that include that are bipartisan, as well as, as uh, Senator Blackburn will probably talk about, uh, to look at these issues of sex trafficking and to try to protect and defend children and families in our digital world. Michael Toscano, friend and colleague, he's the executive director of the Institute for Family Studies, and he is an absolute leader, game changer when it comes to what the states are doing, and we'll talk more about that, to protect children from online harms and, frankly, the predations of these big tech companies. Annie Chestnut Tudor, uh, she is a policy analyst in the Tech Policy Center here at the Heritage Foundation. She worked in the U.S. Senate for eight years, longer than that if you count her internship. And most recently, she was uh, the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee staffer for Ron Johnson and in L.A. for Senator Mike Lee. And her policy portfolio at the time included technology and telecom. So legitimate experts here on the stage. The last thing I'll say before I actually sit down is... The Heritage Foundation is trying to tackle this problem as well. So we have many different types of um, uh, you know, levers that we can pull on from technical solutions that we recommend, congressional legislative policy proposals, and we're finally doing something concrete. And today, you guys are the lucky ones, we are unveiling a new project by the Heritage Foundation in partnership with uh, our other centers and marketing teams and the Tech Policy Center to protect children online. This is safekids.heritage.org, and the idea is to have a one-stop shop for parents to go when they want their questions answered about more stringent default settings on these platforms. What are the new pieces of legislation that they can get behind at the grassroots level to try to protect their children? And then just in, a, in very you know, layman's terms, what do these platforms do? How are they harming my kids, and how do I fix them? How do I go into the settings and actually make it as uh, make the harms to children as uh, least prodigious as possible. So go to safekids.heritage.org and see for yourself. This has uh, been almost a year in the making, and we hope that you guys use it because we saw a gap, and this is what we are shooting through as the Tech Policy Center and other centers here at the Heritage Foundation. All right. You guys should all be doing it on your phones right now, going to safekids.heritage.org. Don, you are my uh, my first victim. Um, you know, 
Zuckerberg's over there. Evan's over there. Um, a number of people are over there. The the new um, head of X, not Elon Musk, uh, is over there. And you know what they're doing. What I noticed from watching the hearing is they're they're all sort of making appeals to the fact that they have their own kids and it's very important for them to you know make sure that that kids aren't harmed. Yet they have done nothing. Uh, and you know, granted. I worked at big tech companies. I know there are really smart people, uh, great programmers who are looking at, you know, CSAM and those issues, but there's so much more to be done. Why are we in the state that we're in? Why, why are they being hauled up in front of Congress? Mm -hmm. uh, because as um, one of the senators said, they have blood on their hands. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was such a powerful moment. It was. Um, okay, I have been, I've spent the last day and a half with dozens of parents who flew in for the hearing today who've lost their children mostly by suicide because of the experiences that they have faced on these platforms. They stood up today, I don't know if you all saw it, but they were holding their pictures up and Mark Zuckerberg had the audacity to say if there were just better controls and better parenting things would get better. He just said that. The reality here is that these tech companies are not just protecting the perpetrators of sexual harm and so much other harm, they are the perpetrators themselves. And that was unveiled today. They know what they're doing. The blood is on their hands. They've known for years. Um, I wanna also comment that, yeah, they brag so much today about the resources that they've expended on protecting children, on, how much money they've spent, which I want to tell you, too, that they wouldn't admit what percentage that would be of all of their money. They only threw out these big numbers. Um, and they, they bragged about the parent centers that they have, have implemented, the parental controls. You guys, they do not work. There's so many, they've designed these platforms without per parents in mind. I've met with most of the trust and safety teams at these companies, and most of them aren't even parents. And it's like they're not even testing the controls themselves. They, they do not work. For Apple, if you want to turn on the built-in parental controls on the Apple devices, if you don't have your device automatically paired through family sh sharing, it takes 32 steps. You have to go to four different settings. Who can figure that out? Google has the same problem. Snapchats and metas, all of them just go off at randomly. Like, they have not invested at all enough to protect our children, and they've taken our power and our rights away as parents. I, I have so much more to say, but I'll pass it on. <laughs> no, we'll let you say it. Um, Michael, the reason why you're here is because you were absolutely instrumental in engendering a lot of these age verification pieces of legislation, some of which have actually passed in the states. So many states uh, with our, our HAFA counterparts, you know, they're, they're working together. They're, they're really trying to do something in this regard. Obviously, there's some uh, steep opposition, as uh, Attorney General Miara has alluded to. But where are we right now in the states, and where do you see us going? Successes, failures, pain points, what do you think? That's a great question. Thank you for having me. And also, uh, congratulations on the launching of the new site. It looks awesome, and I'm sure I'll be using it. So uh, thank you for that. The states uh, is, a, uh, is a kind of a splendid uh, Jackson Pollock painting where so much is happening, and that's a good thing. 
uh, it's not only one direction. They're trying a lot of different things, and I want to see as many flowers bloom as possible because there is no one silver bullet uh, to solving this problem. For instance, Florida is considering passing legislation that would make it uh, so that way children under the age of 16 would not be would not be able to get on social media, which is a, a more aggressive stance. I think that's the brass ring because the, 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 the main problem that kids are uh, dealing with today is not just that they are being addicted by these devices, but that addiction takes them out of things that make them happy, you know, such as relationships with their, with their parents, with their friends, with their surrounding community, even with themselves and in their moment, where they are, they're constantly zipping off to some imaginary place when if they could just learn to be where they are, they would be grounded and they would be much happier. Um, but, uh, you know, as it relates to where things are in the kind of the broader age verification scheme, what I can, what I can relay is a lot of success, but then a lot of pushback. Currently, there are four states that have adopted age verification for social media sites and eight that have adopted age verification for pornography platforms. And I work very closely with a lot of these states, and there are many more that are going to be trying to pass legislation this year. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is quite simple, and uh, Attorney General Miares uh, described it perfectly well. Everybody knows someone who has kind of lost their innocence to these platforms. And so these legislators, many of whom have children of their own or grandchildren, are shocked to see what's become of their loved ones. And so there's a lot of energy there. So I think a lot of the applause, uh, it goes to these legislators that have heard all of the arguments from big tech lobbyists about why this will not work, and they're pushing ahead anyway. Uh, I think they are uh, willing to court the bad press and uh, are willing to take the risk. So things look good. Yeah, you reminded me of a moment where we had uh, a banned TikTok press conference when the TikTok CEO was testifying on March 23rd last year. And we had partners like Moms for Liberty and, and young girls come. One of them had a poster and it said, TikTok stole my innocence. That's what we're confronted with. Knowing the threat, Annie, I mean, you were in Congress for a long time as a staffer on the most relevant committees to, to this problem. Why have we thus far been unable to, to pass any big piece of federal legislation that would really nip a lot of these problems in the bud, uh, especially in 118th Congress? What does 119th Congress look like? And why thus far has that momentum, that, that Michael, that righteous momentum, why is that salt? Why can't it translate into legislative victories? Well, first, I want to make a comment on your first question. The fact that these CEOs have children, I do not find as a compelling reason for not passing legislation or implementing uh, regulations. And you're right, it has been difficult for Congress to actually pass anything. And I think there are a few factors. I think one, you have the balance of power. Um, there's a slim majority in both chambers, slim majority in the Senate, Democrats control, and then the House, a slim majority for the Republicans. And there's obviously a partisan divide. 
I think on uh, the side of Republicans, a lot of members have, um, I think, first maybe struggled with the idea of placing regulations on these industries because just for so long you just have the idea that principle that we should have a limited government. Um, and certainly there are industries that are overregulated and regulations maybe need to be rolled back. But this is a brand new industry. I mean, it is like the Wild West out there. And so I hope that through these years of these hearings, like the fact finding that we keep doing to show how bad these harms are, um, are finally compelling members that it is okay to place some regulations and some guardrails. And I think on behalf of the Democrats, I think they're, they also have um, competing interests. These companies are left-leaning. Uh, they are bankrolling a lot of the Democratic members. There are several members of Congress who have children who work for these companies. Um, and there are just a lot of Democrats, uh, the cultural influence leans that way. I mean, Hollywood leans left. So I think a lot of them are um, hesitant to bite the hand that feeds them. That's a really good way of putting it. I like that. And you're saying on behalf of the Democrats, the quiet part out loud, right? Like, what are my children going to do? Who are they going to be employed by? What are my staffers going to do when we're out of here? You know, we got to court the big tech companies because that's sort of what the large, that's where the largesse is. Um, but Don, so are these hearings... Are they just theater? Is anything going to happen? Are we? Does everyone get their clickbait? Does everyone, you know, get their little soundbite and they could put it online? They can stoke the outrage machine. You know, parents write in and, uh, you know, tell them vote for them again. Is that what this is all for, or are we actually going to be serious about doing something? This, and what would this you do? is not about that. This is change, and I want to highlight that most of the child protection bills. There's five key bills right now before the Senate, and they have. All of them have over 30 co-sponsors, really equal Republicans and Democrats. Some of them have over 50. Like, never before. Like, we don't agree on anything else. But we agree that children should be protected online and that these tech companies are responsible for immeasurable harm. And that has to end. And I think that's what's, that's what's happening. I believe that these bills will finally break through and they'll be brought to vote. We'll see. We'll see significant movement. I think Congress is finally fed up. They're, they're done hearing from so many parents, from so many youth who have lost their lives, have lost their innocence, have lost their ability. You know, the families are destroyed. And they're listening and they're speaking up. I mean, it was so inspiring to sit there and see all of the Republicans and Democrats agreeing, loving one another, just yelling at these CEOs just a few, you know, just across the street. This is this is going to lead to real change. And parents, all of you watching, like as we, I have five kids too. I started into this work before they came, but now, oh my goodness, I am that mama bear. And as we find each other, real change is coming. Don, I'm going to stick with you for a minute because I think this is really interesting, especially as a mom of five kids. Amazing. And I know you're, you're a father too, Michael, and this is huge. I don't know how you do it. But it, what would you say, and I get this in, I'm very online, right? So I get this in the Twitter sphere all the time, 
this is not a government problem. This is not a platform problem. This is a parenting problem. I'm a new parent. I'm not doing it right. I'll like probably I don't, I'm really bad. But at the same time, I don't really think it's a parenting problem. You know, I think as the Surgeon General said, who I don't agree with on most things, we're outgunned. What would you say to people who say it's a parenting outgunned. issue? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you guys, I mean, as parents, we have no power here. They have built these platforms without our children's safety in mind at all. If the parental controls go off after 30 days, like, and you're not notified, come on. How, what are you supposed to do about that? My, my kids, we homeschool. Homeschool, why? A lot of reasons. This is part of it. But my, my kids need to be online to learn, right? The other day, my daughter is sending me a request to, for a school assignment on, on her Google Chromebook. Like, it was so complicated. It took 30 minutes to figure out how to just approve that. They have made it so difficult. And, you know, all these parents I told you about who I, w I was with this yesterday and today, most of them said no to their kids. They can't be on social media. But what happens? They sneak on anyway because they're kids and because these tech platforms allow them. They don't do any kind of verification at all. We as parents have no control and power. And what other industry, I'm like yelling, I'm sorry, but what other industry enjoys those protections? None, no, no, nothing else in America gets those kinds of protection and can wreak such havoc on our families. And then I think that's exactly right. And Michael, how how have these these companies been able to pull the the wool over the eyes of people with their hands on the levers of power? You know, even people who are probably listening to this right now. Well, there there tends to be a, a general deference to uh, corporate America, but also to technology per se. Uh, part of what it means to be American is to be someone that unleashes innovation or is to be willing to allow potentially your life to be transformed by a technology that you yourself did not invite or have any financial stake in. So I think technology has a certain kind of mythical quality that um, for the longest time baffled lawmakers. They couldn't figure out what to do in front of this uh, this thing, this entity, and now I think it's become clear that behind uh, behind the curtain is a voracious money-making machine that is using all of this alluring, magical qualities of technology to suck uh, money out of the pockets of their children, and at the you know, and being willing to destroy their mental state in order to get those rewards. Um, so for I, I think that's the primary reason is that for the longest time, technology itself was just legislatively baffling. And I think it's becoming unmasked as something that we realize just because this is part of our American mythos doesn't mean we need to sacrifice our children on the altar of it. I totally agree. And what I think is important in these conversations is that these aren't just nebulous concepts, right? We're not just saying, oh, you know, children are, they'd probably be better if they looked up and, you know, didn't get tech neck by the time they were 12 years old and, you know, actually looked people in the eyes. But can you lay out some of the, the material effects, like the actual harms that these platforms are, um, are, are propagating in our society? And Don, too, I think you'd be a great person. So, so feel free to interject as well. Yeah, I, um, my organization, the Institute for Family Studies, the reason why we got involved with this work is because uh, there was a group of moms that 
um, that harangued us and said, you don't understand, you're talking about all these, in these issues related to my family, but the one that I care the most about is the one that you're not concentrating on. So we began to study it. And what we looked at was whether or not there was, to the question of, of what parents can do, whether there was a family formation value on the way uh, big tech was organized in a given household. Do, the question was asked, two, uh, two intact two-parent households do better when it comes to technological regulation and mental health than other, other um, non-traditional family forms? And what we found was that the answer was yes, but so marginally so that there was effectively no difference, that, um, that kids were on these, these platforms, no matter your family form, for hours upon hours on end, and that the correlation between being online uh, for a, a certain durations of time and mental health decline was extremely strong. And I would, I would I'd, uh, point you to uh, a new book which is coming out by Jonathan Haidt called The Anxious Generation, which is, will be out in March. And one of the points that Haidt makes is that when you ask Gen Z, which is the generation uh, in which the, these uh, platforms and devices became normalized, uh, what is, you know, are they anxious? Are they depressed? You know, uh, have they had suicide, suicidal thoughts? The numbers are generally through the roof. But the highest one is anxiety, generally. And the, the interesting thing about anxiety is that um, as an emotional reaction, it is very similar and akin to fear. And so when you think about that there's an entire generation that just walks around with this kind of omnipresent sense of fear, I mean, you, I think what you're, what you're dealing with is um, effectively a generation that is, needs our help. Um, <laughs> um, there's a lot to say about this, and Mark Zuckerberg did just say that there are no studies that indicate that there are mental health problems because of social media based by our really users. bad staff work. What? He needs to, yeah, <laughs> some people need to get fired. What? But I just want to tell you a story, maybe, to help you understand this. So we have a law center, and we've started filing lawsuits against these big tech companies, the pornography companies, for the immense harm that they're inflicting. Um, it's tough. We are losing because of Section 230 in some of the cases. Some are allowed to go forward. But one young girl, um, 10 years old, she was on Roblox. Are you familiar with Roblox, any of you? It's like the most popular children's game. I mean, a lot of adults play it too, but it was initially made for kids ages under, under 13. 12.8 million kids are on it every day, ages 8 to 10. 12.8 million kids. They know, they allow predators on it. You don't have to verify anything. And you can connect and talk to kids by default. And so there are thousands of cases, pretty much a month, of predators targeting youth on Roblox. And then they take them over to Snapchat and TikTok and X, and the exploitation continues. Well, that's what happened to one of our clients when she was 10 years old. Her parents were so strict. Her mom only let her play this one game that was supposed to be safe for kids when she was folding laundry, when the little girl was right next to her. And the daughter was targeted by someone. She became so depressed, so withdrawn, started isolating. The predator was able to send a device to their home, got the little girl to share their address, 
explained, you know, how, all these ways, how to get onto TikTok, how to get onto Snapchat without her parents knowing, where the abuse became so horrific. This little girl, 10 years old, tried to kill herself twice. She was admitted to the hospitals. The, her predator, I, like, it's so horrific. But, but this is, we have, this, we have two cases like this, almost the same story. In another, in Utah, the boy was kidnapped and taken to Nebraska. The police knew that this was happening and went to Twitter and asked Twitter to disclose who the user was. Twitter refused even after the little boy was taken. I mean, the harms and then living in fear. One in five of our kids that are, this is just from the Thorn report this year, one in five of our little kids between nine and 12 have encountered sexual, have had a sexual encounter with someone they believe is an adult online. Our little babies. And then they live in fear so many times they create, they're enticed to create content to self-produce child sexual abuse images. And they live in constant fear that it's going to be shared and uploaded again and again. One of our clients against we, Twitter, Twitter knew these two young boys, 13, they were trafficked. Their images were recorded, uploaded to Twitter. These boys begged Twitter to take it down. They uploaded photos of their ID to prove that they were underage. Twitter said it doesn't violate our standards and allowed it to stay up for days, 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 amassing hundreds of thousands of views. The Ninth Circuit just ruled in favor of Twitter that they have blanket immunity. But these boys live in constant fear that it's going to be uploaded again and again. And you know what? We know it's been uploaded 187 times in other places, the same content that Twitter allowed to stay. There's very likely countless others. Can you imagine walking through life thinking that something you did when you were a young kid is, is possibly going to follow you for the, forever? How do you move on? Imagine the impact that has on your dreams, on your schooling, on your future family. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that you know, you throw that up against the very real fact that when certain conservatives or heterodox thinkers want to use these platforms, like, they move out when it comes to policing that speech. You know, it's a, I think it's a, a factor of what they prioritize. Um, again, you know, worked in these companies, I, I understand that there are, you know, very talented people who are sort of looking at this problem, but it's nowhere near close to the weight that other things like policing the speech of actual Americans gets in those companies, unfortunately. Um, Annie, I'm fascinated by your work on the committees and your efforts to uh, write and draft uh, and shape a lot of the, the legislation that we've seen uh, attempted uh, to, to be uh, up for a vote in one 118th Congress. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll see more bright spots in 119th, but... I do we give up on your former place of business and just retrench and go into the states and say, hey, our labs of democracy are the only ones doing real things? Or do we keep going? And I don't think Senator Blackburn's here, so she doesn't have to hear your uh, your comments. Yeah. Well, no, we definitely do not give up. But I think you're right that um, we do need to turn to the states too. like not only look at Congress to be. Um, the solution, but also the states. And there are many states that are doing great things, like Michael said. Um, you know, Louisiana was the first state to require age verification for pornography websites. Several other states have followed suit, including Virginia. Um, states are also looking at 
requiring greater parental controls for these social media companies or looking at age verification. Because um, I, I think we really need to ask, why aren't these companies doing more? And I think that there are two main reasons. I think one, because they're making money, a lot of money, and they stand to lose a lot of revenue if they make it harder for kids to create social media accounts or if they start actually banning some of these kids or prohibiting them from creating accounts because currently it's just, it relies on self-certification of, of how old you are. So like Attorney General Morales says, a 10-year-old just has to say, uh, yeah, I'm actually 19 years old, um, and they can create an account. And I also think it's the immunity that they have in Section 230. And a few years ago on the Hill, it was very controversial to um, suggest, should we look at 230? And because of the disruption it would be, because it provides all of these platforms immunity from liability, and they aren't treated as the speaker of um, user-generated content on their websites. No, I think, and we at the Heritage Foundation have been big advocates of focus, focused Section 230 reform, so I want that on the record. Um, okay, lightning round before we go into Q&A. So Senator Graham today said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, there's an upside, but the dark side of big tech, of these platforms, is not something that we can live with. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, Don? Most definitely right. <laughs> Michael? Right. Annie? Correct. All right. Okay. I like it. Uniformity. This is the one time that I think everyone agreeing actually works. All right. So we'll go to audience Q&A. Um, this gentleman up here. I have an odd question. So I've always thought a lot of Sheryl Sandberg. I liked Lean In. I liked her book, Option B. Um, I've always thought she's well-spoken. What to make of her reputation with all of this going on with Meta? <laughs> you know, I mean, the reality is that all the executives at Facebook, Meta, they know very well what they're doing. They know very well that millions of children and families are being impacted and they're not doing anything, nothing meaningful really about it. So it hurts her reputation, actually. It should. It should. Yeah. All right. Hello, Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. My issue and the reason why I'm here today is that after the DNC protest, I talked to over a dozen of them and they spouted some stuff that was very anti-Semitic. They spouted things that were um, of the bin Laden letters. A couple tried to convince me it had merit and I just kept asking questions. Where did they get this? They came from good families. They were brainwashed. I will just say that word. It sounds conspiratorial, but no, they were brainwashed. And the issue is, is that they, since they were children, when they open an app, they're not given a disclaimer that says what you're seeing might not be true. 
I think every time a child opens up their app, just like if you pick up a, a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of wine that says it could cause fetal alcohol syndrome, I just think that you need to have it embedded in your brain that what you're reading might not be true. And I think that that one thing, I did some research on bipartisan, it really woke up a lot of Democrats, especially Democrats that are like, they celebrate Hanukkah. And you know what? We as a country have to unite. And this is why I'm here for this dialogue. And thank you for everything that you've spoken. Thank you. What do you guys think about that disclaimer? I think that's really interesting. We've talked about it amongst our team before. I'm looking at you, Daniel Cochran. Uh, But what do you guys think about that? We've been advocating for something similar when it comes to harms to children and the reality of sexual abuse and exploitation on these platforms. And they're not doing it. They're not doing it. One thing I uh, would um, respond with, and it's not something I mentioned earlier because we're talking about these uh, five uh, social media platforms, but the device itself through which a lot of these young people gain access uh, to these platforms also needs to be brought into this conversation because it sits there and the world behind it just disappears and the images that present themselves to them are so potent and powerful, they become highly receptive to what they're seeing. And I think a conversation perhaps for another day is how can we take this energy here and also apply it to the devices that themselves are profiting off of these, the brainwashing, as you put it, of our kids. Oh, I want to add to that. (laughs) So about the devices too, we're very happy that these age verification bills are moving through the states. But there's also legislation that has so much more opposition from big tech that would ensure that by default, the safety settings are turned on for any users of devices that are underage. I mean, the Google and Apple have these, I mean, they're decent controls. They're pretty good. But it's so hard for us to figure out how to turn them on when by default with Chromebooks, um, a couple years ago, we had a big victory. We got them with just an, a software update to turn on all of the built-in safety controls for all K through 12 Chromebooks, like a software update. Imagine if the device level, we could protect our kids also. They, they most definitely need to be brought into this conversation. I agree with you. I'll just say that Nikosi has been a leader on this. She didn't mention that. <laughs> but, with you. Yeah. What about you, Annie? You got an opinion? Yeah, well, um, in terms of her comments about um, like kind of the brainwashing that kids are enduring, I mean, what we're seeing is on like TikTok especially is that the algorithm has this feedback loop. And so if you watch some uh, kind of pro-Hamas video, you're going to watch another one. And um, I mean, I, I heard someone say earlier today that there is like 20 to 1 pro-Hamas-related material on TikTok versus Israel. So um, it is a real problem. All right, in the back here. Uh, Hi, uh, question. Any insight on uh, why YouTube and Roblox and other uh, companies that I think are bigger offenders than Meta and TikTok were not there today? That's a great question. And also, um, uh, parallel to that is that on the state level, something we've seen 
quite a lot of is that counter lobbying efforts are sometimes more successful for to get certain companies exempted from regulation, such as in the famous case being in Arkansas's age verification bill. Uh, YouTube, Google's YouTube, was able to lobby itself out of the bill and was exempted as not being regulated. This is obviously absurd, um, and I think um, this is one of the one of the reasons why I would say that ultimately a federal level solution is necessary. Because in that case, even though not all of them were there at this hearing, we can we can look forward to legislation that is going to treat all of these bad actors equally. Um, so I think it's a it's a very good question, and it it may just be that that for some reason there are certain names that are more famous than others. Um, but that there are there are cer certainly other companies that are doing absolutely vile things to our kids, and they should be held for, to account as well. And, and those five companies are not even necessarily the worst. They're really bad. But this is systemic. This is industry-wide, and that's what we have to remember. We need to be calling them all out. All right, we have time for one more. We've got one minute. You, sir, very patient. Thank you. Thank you. You've all done a great job laying out the bad actors and their nefarious activities. Are there any examples of good actors online that you might trust to let your kid alone with? Or or it seems like there'd be a huge market for it if there were. Yeah. Do you mind if I... So, I mean, I think of the, on the, uh, when it comes to devices, there are companies that are doing really uh, innovative things for kids. I can think of Gab, the Gab phone, the Bark phone, the Light phone which I have, but kids won't like it that much. Um, and I think also, you know, Senator Blackburn, who we'll hear from a moment uh, in a moment, um, she has legislation called the, is it, it's OMA. So what it, OMA. OMA, right, okay. And so what, what that would basically enable, uh, what that would require is that if a, a device which comes preloaded with a certain, uh, with, with a certain app store, that it would be possible to download or, as it's called, sideload other app stores which might be able to cater specifically to kids. Like, think about the difference between, you know, Disney and HBO. Currently, our app store market is like HBO, but what if we could have legislation that would enable parents to actually choose a different app store market for their kids? And so there are solutions that are out there right now, and uh, that bill in particular, I think, would be, would be very helpful to that effect. Amazing. All right. Um, I'm going to cut you off. We've got the woman of the hour here. My apologies. We could talk about this for a very long time. But um, if you guys will take your seats, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Senator Blackburn. So U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, she was sworn into the Senate on January 2019. She was elected in 2018 and is currently serving as a representative of Tennessee. Uh, this, she's a representative of the Tennessee's seventh uh, congressional district before that. And her public service, I find this really, really interesting. It's dedicated to promoting opportunities for women and making America a more prosperous place to live. She has been a warrior when it comes to this. I mean, I, I, I've, I've talked about this before, but when, you know, you look at John the Baptist, right, I'm crying out alone in the wilderness. Marsha Blackburn was here first, and she has been working, and her staff have been working um, to the bone to actually get some federal legislation passed here. So we are so pleased to give her a stage. We want her to keep going, and thank you so much, Senator Blackburn, for coming.
Thank you so much. It sounds like you all are having a good, productive discussion, and I appreciate that. Uh, we've had quite a day on the Hill, as you're probably aware, quite a hearing that we have had going on with these uh, social media CEOs. And uh, one of the points, I think, it, as we talk about social media, it is important to realize when you are online, you are the product. And their business models are built on your addiction. That's what they have to have. And the addictive algorithms, the infinite scroll, endless push notifications, these features are meant to keep you on that platform and not let you go. And the more time you spend with this app, then the more data you're producing, the richer that data is. And what do we know? The more valuable it is to that company because they're going to make more money when they sell your data. And anybody can fall victim to these addictive features. We have talked about that today over on the Hill. But what we do know is that kids and teenagers are the prime targets. We've had so much research come our way on this. And actually, the companies know this same information. They have done research, but they will not tell you that they have done this research. You heard Mark Zuckerberg today say that Instagram is actually very healthy for kids. But what we know is that teens are spending eight and a half hours a day with the screen. Think about that. That's the equivalent of their job. And then you look at their younger siblings, the tweenagers, and they are spending five to five and a half hours a day. So think about this. These are kids. These are basically babies. So it is no coincidence that as social media usage has grown, what have we also seen peak? It is mental health disorders for our kids and teens. According to HHS, teen depression rates doubled, doubled from 2010 to 2019. That is astounding. Now, girls have seen the sharpest increase in mental health and depression disorders. As children become increasingly addicted to social media, we have seen big tech platforms really turn a blind eye to what they're exposing children to with the harmful content, with child predators. And just this month, we received some internal documents about Meta's child safety policies that revealed to us that in 2021, an estimated 100,000 minors received sexually abusive content every single day. This is not something that they were looking for. It is something that was fed to them. So you've got 100,000 kids a day 
that are basically being force-fed this. Although employees warned the C-suite at Meta that people you may know algorithm connected these teens and minors with potential child predators, the company ignored the warning and did nothing about the abuse on their platforms. This new information, which we are making public, this trove of emails that we have, came to us through a lawsuit that the New, new Mexico Attorney General had against Meta, and it really corroborates the testimony that we had from a whistleblower, Arturo Bejar, who came to us last November. Bayar is a former engineering director at Facebook, and he told us that Meta executives knew that millions of teens were facing bullying, eating disorders, solicitation of lethal drugs, sexual exploitation. And the Meta executives chose to do nothing. They knew children were being endangered on their platform. Instead, these executives withheld this damaging information from congressional oversight. We were conducting oversight, and one of the individuals on these emails was appearing before us. But they withheld that information. They rolled back some of their safety tools, and they dismantled teams responsible for children's safety. And the email that referenced the conversation from Nick Clegg to Mark Zuckerberg said that the children's well-being program lost out to other priorities of Mark Zuckerberg. And what we know is that this is not just an issue with Meta. For years, my colleagues and I on the Judiciary and Commerce Committee have heard such heartbreaking stories from parents and grandparents and teachers and principals and physicians, just heartbreaking stories about children that have been lost because of social media. Jenny DeSirio, whose 16-year-old son Mason took his own life after being inundated with hundreds of video posts on Chinese-owned TikTok, and those posts glorified suicide. Now, Mason was a standout football and track athlete at his high school in northwest Arkansas, and he was flooded with this suicidal content when he went on searching for terms that included, and I quote his, his search, inspirational quotes and positive affirmations. We heard from Kristen Bride, whose 16-year-old son, Carson, ended his life after receiving hundreds of threatening and sexually explicit messages from his classmates on Snapchat. Carson's tormentors messaged him anonymously, and in his very last Google search on his phone, Carson tried to find out ways to discover who was targeting him. And we heard from the family of Grace McComas, 
She died by suicide after the young man who drugged and then sexually assaulted her took to social media to make her feel isolated, afraid, and completely worthless. When the abuse started, Grace's parents went to the school, informed the school. They went to the police. They told their story there. And they also went to the state's attorney. Yet there was nothing that they could get done. Nothing that they could get done. Grace's tormentor was not banned from these platforms. This should never happen to any family. But these tragedies happen across our country every single day. The reason for that is because big tech puts profit over children. Profit is their motive. During today's Senate Judiciary hearing, we had the CEOs of five of the big tech companies. We had MetaX, TikTok, Snap, and Discord. And I asked them what they had to say to the parents that had lost these children. There were people there that had on T-shirts that said, I'm worth more than $270. Because that is the value that Mark Zuckerberg had assigned to each teenage user on Meta's platform. Of course, they, they made excuses. They didn't want to answer these questions. It was hard to get a straight answer. I encourage you to watch the hearing. I asked Mark Zuckerberg how, according to a Wall Street Journal report that we saw last year, that a vast pedophile network, as the journal uh, couched it, was allowed to grow on Instagram, including content showing teenagers for sale to older men. And, of course, he made excuses. He acted like they were on top of this issue. Evan Spiegel about why his platform, Snap, allows children to share their real-time location, exposing them to predators and drug dealers who regularly connect minors on their app to sell lethal drugs, including fentanyl. Again, what did the committee hear? Excuses. And TikToks show you about why his platform would recommend graphic, disturbing videos that encourage viewers to kill themselves. Mr. Chu was so busy making notes, he would hardly even look at us. For years, big tech companies have made empty promises about how they are going to address this rampant abuse, this malicious content, and the criminal activity that is on their platforms. And what we have found out is big tech is incapable of policing themselves. They're incapable of putting together best practices, and they're incapable of implementing that. They would rather go make money than they would to put these things in. So this is why... We are pushing forward with our legislation that is bipartisan. Every bill that we have at Senate Judiciary is bipartisan. Every bill that we have moved out of committee has been unanimous. And it's hard to do that right now. But this is an area where everyone agrees. 
Over the last three years, Senator Blumenthal and I have worked to craft and refine the Kids Online Safety Act that would provide parents and children with the tools, the safeguards, and the transparency, the accountability that they need to protect themselves from these online harms. This legislation includes provisions to hold big tech companies accountable. It requires platforms to give minors and their families new controls to support their children, to help their children, including the ability to opt out of the platform's algorithmic recommendations and give parents and kids the ability to set those recommendations for themselves. It would provide new tools for parents to identify harmful behavior and report abuse directly to social media sites and then make those sites do something about it. We talk to parents who report bullying, self-harm, predators, and the site never responds. We have one parent the site finally responded two years after her child died. This is what we're dealing with. Our legislation would create a duty of care for online platforms to prevent and mitigate specific dangers to minors, including the promotion of suicide, eating disorders, substance abuse, and sexual exploitation. It would establish mandatory third-party annual audits to ensure that these platforms are living up to the letter of the law. What we know is this. Without some real reforms, without some enforceable measures, that social media companies will only continue to pay lip service to protecting kids online. They have proven that they're not serious about this. They have proven that their business model is addiction, and they have proven that they are going to put profits over children. So thank you all so much for being here and for your interest in this issue. We are going to continue to push to get this legislation through the Senate, over to the House, out of the House, and to the President's desk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Their business model is addiction, $270 per teenager. That is extremely powerful to me. So until this gets to the president's desk or other policies are enacted that help safeguard our kids, we can try to stop the bleeding. Go to safekids.heritage.org and we'll see you on the website. Thank you for coming. <laughs>